0: Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Woodfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rc.org.uk. So today I'm speaking with RSE Fellow, Professor Nick Watson, Chair of Disability Research and Director of Centre for Disability Research at the University of Glasgow, and Theresa Shearer, Group Chief Executive of Enable Scotland, Vice Convener of the Scottish Council for Voluntary Organisations, and a Trustee of Inclusion Europe. As well as both being members of the RSE's post-COVID Futures Commission Inclusive Public Service Working Group, both Nick and Theresa have a long-standing commitment and passion to improving the lives of disabled people and ensuring their voices are heard the Who Better to speak to us today on disability and inequalities. Teresa, perhaps you could kick off by telling us a little bit about ENABLE and its model of support for people with learning disabilities.
1: Hi Rebecca, thank you for having me here this morning. So the Enable group consists of three distinct charities. We have Enable Scotland, which is the initial part of the charity founded by parents and family carers, and that continues to campaign and advocate for people with learning disabilities. Over its 67-year history, um, Enable Scotland has changed quite a bit. And we now have two very distinct and quite substantial and impactful um, parts of the charity. Enable All, which is our health and social care support services. And Enable Works, which supports people with disabilities into education, employment and training. The part I think you're most interested in that you've asked there is Enable All, which is our health and social care arm. And that works on a model of human rights based, self directed, fully inclusive service provision for people who perhaps require some additional health and care support throughout their life, primarily people with learning disabilities, but not exclusively. And our model is very much based on the principles of choice and control. And I do think that um, it's very easy to see that, Rebecca. I think what we have now is a track record and some really strong data of um, delivering human rights based support in the most complex and difficult circumstances, not least throughout the past 18 months and indeed the pandemic itself. And can you just say a little bit more about the sort of human rights sort of
0: model of care? And, and, you know, why is that so important and what difference does that make to people's lives?
1: I think if you look at social policy linked to um, health and social care support over the years, Rebecca, what we have seen is um, lots of policy changes that talk about human rights-based, about people having choice and control, about moving of people from hospitals into communities. And the real focus there was about the move from institutionalisation. But actually what we saw, um, your house can be an institution, Your community can be an institution if you do not have equity of support to access those assets of your community. And if you don't have the choice and control to live the life you choose. And one of the things that that I'm very passionate about is independent living. The idea that people with learning disabilities and indeed all citizens should have the right to live independently in the community of their choice in the way that they choose. And, and you do see that, that, that that's also a human rights based issue, but it's also just very much a citizens based issue. If we want a fairer, more prosperous and more equal Scotland, then it has to start at the heart of how we treat those people who potentially have not been given access to that equity of access in the past. So it's the, it's the a d'etre data. It's the purpose of our charity, and um, we don't have any model of support other than a human rights-based model of support. It's not something you can pick and choose. It's in our DNA, and we're very passionate about that, as hopefully you will hear throughout the podcast today. And, and
0: that's certainly been one of the strands that the Inclusive Public Service Working Group of the Commission have been looking at, recognising that there's you know, some really good examples, I think, now in Scotland of that type of model of care, but still quite a long way to go to make sure not just the level of care, but that sort of approach to public service is, is the default rather than um, an exception.
1: Absolutely. I I did a podcast yesterday with another think tank. We were talking about um, trying to avoid exceptionalism when we talk about Scotland in health and social care. Um, And I understand that. However, um, I do look at where we are in Scotland and how far we've travelled. And I think it is quite exceptional. I think we are, in my judgment, in a much better place than other parts of the UK. And certainly from my experience as a trustee of Inclusion Europe, in a much better place than many of the other um, organisations and people that I work with across the European Union. So I think there's much to be celebrated for where we are in Scotland with a human rights-based approach in care and in public services. But you're absolutely right, we are not there. And you only have to look at some of the data that has come out of the pandemic and the continuing health inequalities for people with disabilities to see that. But yes, we we are... Further down the road in Scotland, I think we can see confidently with this being part of how we provide health and care support and indeed more broadly public services in Scotland.
0: Thank you. And I'd like to come back a bit later to the to the impact of, of COVID, but I guess one of the things that impacts on people having choice and control is whether they have the financial means as well. And, and Nick, in your work, you've very much been looking at, or at the links between poverty and disability. And I, and I was sort of struck by one of your that you quoted in a recent article that almost a third of disabled people are living in poverty, as opposed to a fifth of non-disabled people. I wonder, could you just explain some of the reasons for that?
2: I think, I mean, I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, probably, it ranges. It, first of all, it's, it, it's more expensive to be disabled. You know, it costs more. Uh, many disabled people have to have uh, a higher ha- heating. Uh, housing can be more expensive because you have to have a bigger house to make it wheelchair accessible. Or they tend to they tend to have have to be more more expensive, and just sort of aids to daily living. So it becomes it it, it can become in there. There's also there's a there's a there's, there's a big difference in job opportunities for disabled. We know that disabled people are discriminated against, and we also know that disabled people and non-disabled people often disabled people often get paid less than their non-disabled peers for doing the same job. So they're, they're, it's built into that. And, I mean, there's, there's another link between disability and poverty in that disability or impairment, in, in, we, we distinguish between the two with disability being the social disadvantage that people with impairment uh, experience. But impairment is related to poverty. You know, we've known for years the long link between inequalities and, and uh, ill health and inequalities and impairment. So if you live in an area of high social deprivation, you live in poverty, you're more likely to have an impairment yourself. I think there's certain areas where over 50% of the population in Glasgow, certain postcodes, have an impairment or would be considered to to have a disability. So there's that strong link link in in that respect. But there's also other properties that are built in. You know, if you think about um, if you have a a disabled child and you need uh, a, a, a nursery with special needs, often these nurseries aren't available. And you can't get uh, after school after school uh, support, so that means that one of the parents can't work. So you you'll and then that will go right on into the poverty. Poverty will go through to the pension and everything of that family. So it has those long term impacts. So these sort of structural disadvantage, the structural disadvantages that are built in, and 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 pull it pull it in. And then there's um, disabled people are uh, also that you know. They work fewer hours on average because disabled people, within within having an impairment, it may be that they have levels of fatigue that they can't keep going. Um, so there's all of these. I think there's there's a whole sort of structural things that, that pile into on top of disability to create that poverty around there. And and you know the other thing has been that big big cuts in in benefits, big cuts in welfare support we know that uh, i mean work by demos showed that in 2008 the vast majority of the impact of cuts in public expenditure were felt by disabled people i can't remember the exact figure but it was a, there was a you know it's disabled people who carried the can for a lot of for all the way all the way through the years of austerity and i think to pick up on uh, teresa's point about the impact of covid you know we've seen across the country you know disabled people six out of 10 of deaths of COVID have been to disabled people. And, you know, we've hollowed out social care. We've hollowed out the provision of social care across the country. We've massively reduced expenditure on social care uh, uh, across the country. And this is why we're seeing such high deaths, I think, within this, because we've 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 really damaged the system. And many disabled people have, have felt the, the, the added costs of this. So I suppose that there is that, that it's it's all built into that.
0: And Theresa, you've highlighted the need to prioritise investment in in social care as a key feature of of Scotland's recovery. I mean, why has it proved so difficult to to do that? And and I guess not that you want to pitch them against each other, but the the inequality between the investment in the health service as opposed to investment in care.
1: Yeah, I'll come on to that one second. Can I just track back to something Nick says and maybe um, challenge a little bit, Nick, if that's okay, in terms of the data for people with disabilities and how they fear through the pandemic. Your data is absolutely correct, and I'm not going to argue with the Professor of Disability at Glasgow Uni on that one. However, I would put one caveat on that, linked to your earlier point about human rights-based health and support. We're having some work undertaken by Strathclyde University right now, which looks at what happens if people with disabilities were supported during the pandemic in human rights-based high-quality, individualised, personalised care and support, as opposed to congregate settings, because I think there is a real distinction there. And our early data and our judgement shows that whilst you cannot argue with the general data of the pandemic, there are some nuggets of excellent practice of how when you support people with that human rights-based prism in a positive way, actually some of the outcomes were less stark than that data that you've given, but it is very early days. So I, I just, you know, would, would put that caveat there. Rebecca, where do I start about health versus social care? I mean, absolutely. We we have in Scotland, as we have the rest of the UK, a real focus on health and health budgets, and we shouldn't pit them against each other, but I think if we view them as an integrated system, And if we look at 10 years on from Christie, we are still not there, but we need to get there, which is an integrated system should be looking at preventative spend. So it shouldn't be one versus the other. It should be how do we stop the spend at the acute end? How do we ensure that we are putting in scaffolding early in people's lives through community based assets and through health and social care to ensure that we do not end up with a disproportionate number of people overly reliant on the acute end of our health services. So I I think if we go health versus social care as a prism, we're never going to get out of this um, position we're in today. I think if we can look more positively and more broadly at what does a positive integrated system look like with care being given equity of esteem as health, and then start to look at the money as a function of that, rather than the primary driver, I think we will serve our country um, well. We have that opportunity right now with the emergence of the thinking around a national care service.
0: And you were, you were talking earlier just then about, about social care having been hollowed out. Um, so not, not only that it hasn't been invested in, but it's been sort of lessened, you know, actually investment has de- decreased. Can you say a little bit more about that?
2: Well, I think that we we saw. I mean, I don't have the the, the um, exact figures to hand in in in, in Scotland, but that we we do know that there's been a, that there were reductions in in social care. But I think to go back to to the, the Teresa's point, though, we know that people with a learning disability were three times more likely in Scotland to die of COVID than the general population, and we know that um, that people with an intellectual disability were twice as likely as those. Without it to actually get COVID, and that when they got COVID, they were more likely to result in hospitalization or death. So I think that there were pockets, this isn't to say, but there weren't areas where it worked well. But still the vast majority of people with learning disability were exp- more exposed. And I think there was a there's there was real disruption to health and social care due, due to COVID. And, and I think one of the big things that we saw at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, and certainly our work on COVID would show that. There was a switch from, the the, the one of the problems we have, we've got integrated health and social care in England, in Scotland, sorry, and that's a really good thing, to integrate health and social care. But one of the problems has been that health dominates that integration. So the health is the dominant member of that partnership. And at the beginning of COVID, we opened up the Louisa Jordan Hospital. We moved, uh, we found evidence that people who were working with learning disability were shifted To go and work in uh, 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 in, into the health sector, they closed down uh, a large government-run or or local authority-run day centres and day service provision was was closed down, and workers there got moved into different sectors. And I think that what we saw there was a a devaluation of social care compared to health. And and I think part of the problem is that the minister, both this happened both in England and Scotland. they don't have the bandwidth to manage healthcare and social care because the needs were so great and i'm not blaming the the minister because they were they panicking you know they were worrying about how they were going to manage this impending this potential health disaster and so health social care got got forgotten about at the expense of healthcare and i think this this happens quite a lot and i think it's one of the problems that we have with integrating health and social care and it, we, it, the lessons from northern ireland they integrated in 1974 are that health dominates in these health and social care integrations and it's a real problem about about getting people think we we think about it you know we've been talking for um for ages ever since the foundation of the national health service there have been the, the there' have been concerns that social care is devalued at the expense of health and this starting, Right at the beginning of the, of the health service, and we've been talking about what are we going to do about it, but it never has the traction that um, health does. And I think you, you know, uh, uh, Theresa's points about a, a human rights-based approach to um, to health. I think to social care. Sorry, I think there's there's a there's a need to to just accept if we could treat social care in the same way we treat health. Then we that people have a right to the social care. The way that you know, if you go to the if you go to the hospital with a with a bleeding arm, you're expected to be stitched. Well, the same thing should be true of social care. That if you need that social support, you should be. If we're going to have this, there should be that wraparound service. You should have that right to receive that. And and I think part of the problem has been this: the 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 reduction in in that there's been a reduction in costs, but there's also been an increase in demand because we've got uh, uh, a, a the demographic changes. And these are, you know, it's a good thing, the increase in um, age, f- increase in life expectancy and, and everything, but it's placing added demands on our social care service. I think that w- it's, it's being stretched. And, and I think we need to look at new ways of, also new ways of delivering care and new new models of who's going to d- deliver that support and how is that support going to be controlled.
0: And Teresa, you were going to come in. Well, Rebecca,
1: you'll be delighted I agree with something Nick said so far. We're only 20 minutes in. You're absolutely right, Nick, in terms of um, free at the point of use, that that same universality that we have in health should be applied to care. Completely in agreement with that. Um, The example you've given around people switching from social care day services or building-based institutions to Louisa Georgian, of course, is questionable but the other side of that coin, the positive side without sounding like Pollyanna, is we have lots of examples um, particularly in the east of Scotland, so you're given the West of Scotland example there, where people who traditionally were um, utilizing, in my view many institutions in some cases in terms of not adequate day services and, and I have you know views on that as you enable Scotland. Um, actually been given support to do things in their community throughout the pandemic, albeit under the restrictions of the pandemic, with individual support and care. So our PA model that we talk about, Nick, and actually those people, in my judgment, will vote with their feet and they will not return to traditional building-based day services, but actually what they have had through the pandemic is the opportunity to have much more self-directed, human rights-based, community-based support. And actually, if we are to look at some of the positives that come from the pandemic, it should be, it must be that that is the default position.
0: So so it sounds like there's some some areas of good practice and and models that we can point to that are working, but still some challenges in the system. I mean, you've you've both talked effectively about the equity of esteem and that we still haven't got the right to social care and i guess as as a lay person i I sometimes find it quite surprising not least in the context of increasing demand the need for care is impacting on you know the population in a way it maybe hasn't been previously with caring for elderly relatives not just people with with impairments from a disability so why is it so hard i mean it does seem to be an issue that sort of gets kicked down that kicked down the road if you like what why is it so hard? If these conversations have been going on, Nick, as you said, from you know from for decades now, why haven't we managed to re- really address this at a system level rather than in individual examples of good practice?
2: I, mean, I, I think there are probably two reasons. I think there's probably a lack of, of, of. It's a really it's a difficult problem. You know, it's it's a it's a major problem. There, there was a, the, we've had a couple of reviews. We had the Do Not review. Because one of the problems is going to be, one of the problems with with addressing this is that it requires resource and it's going to require new forms of of income. And so if you think back to the not review, uh, which talked about taxing people at 60 or or, or taking uh, people payment. And this became what, uh, when Theresa May put it forward, this became known as the death tax or the dementia tax. And nobody wants to go into a government, into into a thing, saying we're going to tax you more. And I think that's part of the problem is that there is, and you know, Feely, the, the recently published Feely review into social care in Scotland, it, it said we weren't going to look at, they didn't want to look at resource because they want to look at how do you get the best, what what do we need, and then you then get the resource to fund it is what what it, it, it's trying to say. So they they look deliberately how do we create a, a a human rights based approach to care, and then we then see how we we sort it out. And I think there's a. So it's. I think it is a resource problem. People don't want to go in. Governments don't want to go in and say, to do this, we're going to have to tax you more. And I think that that to me might be part of the problem. That it it requires. It's going to require money, and that and to set it up, and a government is going to have to say we're going to have to tax more. And I think, but, but I, I personally think that people would be willing to accept that tax because. It's part of what we need. It's a it's a system that we the the people everybody knows. Everybody's got either parents or or or, or, or relatives who can't receive social care or can't get adequate social care, and the, the reason why is because we can't afford it. There isn't the resource in place. It needs to be that.
1: Yeah, you're right, Nick. I think at a systems level, it's a resource issue, but at a systems level, it's also a legislative issue, and what we have found in social care ecosystem is that perhaps change has not been with the pace required, it's not like public bodies where you can legislate and say this is the change required therefore we are doing this and you must follow that change. There are over a thousand Rebecca social care providers in Scotland across the public sector, the private sector and the not-for-profit sector so trying to instill that change without legislation is frankly impossible at a systems level. So I think where we've had integrated health and social care at a systems level, we can see that some of the legislation drove that change. So the legislation that will come in terms of establishing a national care service will definitely help in terms of that transformational change. I I would be very positive about that. There is also the issue in terms of how you spend the resource, Nick. And I think that for me is is a bigger question at a systems level, because if all we do is resource the current infrastructure and Feely very clearly says they don't want to get into the money or the infrastructure of the care sector. In my view, if you don't get into the structure of the care sector, you are not going to meet the depth of changes required. And and a, a simple example of that would be digital and data. So we have these huge programmes of digital and data innovation in the health service, um, which are not perfect, but they are certainly much less fragmented than we have in terms of digital and transformation in the social care sector, where you have a thousand bodies trying to progress digital and data transformation at a citizen level, which I think um, is questionable in terms of a a good use of public resources and actually what we have to do is find a way that we don't restrict choice and control in terms of social care but actually take out some of the duplication that we know exists just now and will be further entrenched as we move to more digital and data-driven solutions at a systems level. So I think it is about the resources, but it's also about the infrastructure of the sector and the legislation required to drive the change. And is that something of you'd share, Nick?
2: I think yes, I, I agree. I think there needs to be one of my concerns about feeling and about this shift to a human rights-based approach is that remember uh, a few years ago, a, a colleague who works in, in integrate health and social in, in schools and inclusivity in schools said that. What happens is that the language around inclusion changes, but the practice remains the same. And I think there's a real danger that what will happen is that the language will become a language of health, of human rights-based approach to uh, care, but the practice will remain the same. And we need to implement some strategic change into into the some st- st- structural change into the way that social care is delivered. And 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 we need to. Be, I mean, I, I'm I'm. Yet to be convinced that a national care service, which is what the Feely review is is going, is the way to go. Personally, I would rather see more local control and more localised services, and I would rather see the the the, the emergence of more uh, 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 the, the sort of Norwegian or Scandinavian model, more around the use of cooperatives uh, to deliver care and and deliver support. That would be my 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 feeling and 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 at a more local control where there's more local thing, but I it, I can I might be convinced that the that the national care service is the way to go. I'm I'm not 100. I'm I I don't know enough about that as as we move forward. But I think unless we have structural change in here and unless we see, um, I I have uh, um I, I suppose uh, concerns about the. The rather the large amount of private sector uh, for-profit organisations working into care, um, we moved a lot towards more user involvement in care, and of course capital rubbed its hands and said, "Yes, we'll love this because all of the agencies came in to provide this care at uh, a cost." And and we a lot of the, the private sector, and I think the the Welsh uh, government have moved much more towards. Uh, just doing for not-for-profits delivering care. And I would like to see uh, uh, the, I mean, you know, the one thing I would say about our work in COVID and disability has been the the, the real role that the third sector has played in the way that it delivers care. It's been the third sector that there's a flexibility, but also I think it's just because they, they're, they're working for their community groups. And, and they're at the heart of what they do is the interests of their community groups. And so it's about pulling that through and and working with us. And they were very very uh, 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 very flexible uh, and able to change to meet local needs. And my concern would be that a national care service would not have that flexibility and that uh, the that the, the smaller third sector organisations are able to provide. So I would rather see that. That would be the way I would rather see a, a, a delivery through that. But uh, and like I said, that I think you know, Therese is very right that. It's structural change that needs to be in there. And without top-down directed structural change, we'll just carry on as we have done ever since with little changes. But, you know, we've been doing, ever since self-directed support uh, uh, was introduced, we've been doing freedom of information requests to local authorities about the number of people on options one, two, three, and four. These are different ways of delivering uh, social care. Option one is is like where people are given the equivalent of a cash payment to purchase or get. Option two is provided by a, a third set, a third agency, and option three is service as was, which is directly provided services. And option four is a combination. And still, about eighty percent of uh, people are still receiving option three. So there's been very little change in terms of the overall numbers of it. In some areas, this is different, but overall in Scotland, there's been very little change. I think mean, this is going to require some this is going to require top-down you know systematic change to, to shift the way of thinking and get people moving in different directions I
1: think. Rebecca can I just maybe say there's another podcast in that Nick which is I think you become too fixated about the options at times between one and four and I think the thing that we've discussed at length in previous conversations is our model in terms of Enable Scotland and its replicability is in some ways what the options are, are are sort of false constraints. It's the practice of how you deliver. And I, I would sort of defy anyone to come and review the PA model, whichever option the individual takes and say that it isn't human rights based. It doesn't contain choice and control. But actually that is irrespective of those constraints around those options but actually around to your point, the practice. It is the practice on the ground that is absolutely essential. And at the risk of sounding like Tony Blair, to go back to the point of Scandinavian models, I think there's a third way. And the third way would be local groups, local organisations, localised down to the individual, but with some requirement at a national level for those things that we all meet. And I really am quite um, fixated at the moment on digital and data and innovation and some of the great progress we've seen through the pandemic with that, not being lost as we build back or build forward. So I, I think there could be a hybrid, which is a national care service, delivering those things that are common to all social care providers, but still not losing out on that myriad and jigsaw of localism and activism at a community-based level. They're
0: not mutually exclusive. And, and I think that's been a challenge, hasn't it, across a number of areas is how do you get to a sort of national level of support in whatever sector, but also of, but also be responsive to local needs, but without then getting accused of there being a, a postcode lottery. So that yeah. balancing of the local and national, I think, becomes important. I was going to come back maybe a little bit to the, to the role of the third sector, because, again, we've seen this more broadly in terms of the pandemic and, and just in terms, I think, of a much better understanding uh, across society about the critical role that the third sector can play, the way they have been innovative and creative, they've been flexible, they've changed their models to support local needs and, and the communities that they're, they're serving. But I guess what we've also seen is quite a lot of collaboration, you know, whether that's between the government and the third sector, the third sector, the private sector and government and academia. Um, I was wondering, Therese, if you could say a little bit about actually the role of collaboration across sectors in supporting people with disabilities um, and supporting good
1: quality care. So so two things on that, Rebecca. I think in terms of the role of um, collaboration across the sectors, Nick is absolutely right with his word of caution about the role of private equity in the private sector, in particular in delivery of health and social care, and the fact that we have such restricted budgets and significant amounts of that budget going back out, if you like, via shareholder dividend or or private sector returns. So I do think that word of caution there is, is, is right. What I would say, however, is particularly when it comes to digital innovation, that actually we do need to collaborate with the private sector in terms of that expertise, in terms of taking what has worked in other sectors including the private sector and applying evidence based practices to the third sector in the delivery of care. Um, And I I don't want to take things down to a really sort of micro operational level. But if you think about something that vexes both the NHS and social care, it would be rota management systems. (laughs) You know, our organisation has invested over a million pounds in a state of the art rota management system, which has taken out hours and hours of dead time from our workforce to allow them to focus back on the quality of care at the front line. We could not have done that without the support of, and I'm not going to plug them here, but without the support of a number of excellent private sector organisations. So the idea about working with the private sector to deliver excellent not-for-profit care where any surpluses are then funneled back into the not-for-profit world and to unmet demand, Nick, I think is one that you could be comfortable with, that I'm certainly comfortable with, but it is working with them in an appropriate way. And certainly in terms of digital, Rebecca, that has worked, in my experience, in care. But to Nick's point around disability and where it has worked brilliantly in my experience is the disability employment gap. So we know, as Nick says, 70% of people with a learning disability want to work in Scotland, And only 7% do. Now we will not move that dial without working with the private sector. We look at equity in its truest form in terms of higher education. We know that only 4% of people with a learning disability ever access university. So the last year we have figures for that and it was 2017. And the number was 56 young people with learning disabilities accessing university. Now that is scandalous in 2021. What we've done is we have a groundbreaking programme with Scottish Power, with SCV PLC, and with the University of Strathclyde for a really groundbreaking programme which in its first three years of inception has supported 56 young people into university and work. And so we know that if we work together we can actually move the dial on some of those figures. So I am um, very much come from a place which says we need to work across sectors. We will do more working collaboratively than we'll ever do working on our own. But absolutely agree with uh, next note of caution in terms of not opening up care at large to simply the market, because we have seen time and time again and never more so in the pandemic, Nick, the figure of the market when it comes to supporting our people and our citizens in the care sphere.
2: Well, no, I, I agree entirely with the need for involving the private sector in employment. And I, I think that, um, personally, I think we, we should be making a lot more use of things like community payback yeah. uh, uh, schemes where where large contracts are awarded for building houses or or, or home home building or something, but there are that part of the contract is that, 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 that those with protected characteristics or, or local people are employed in this. I think there's, there's a, lot, a lot to be said for that. And, and I, I suppose I think, that, you know, we, we're going back to, we're looking at the broad problem around disability and poverty. There is the big issue of social care, but there's also all of the other structural issues that come into this about uh, in, improving opportunities for for disabled people and then and I think the, the other thing that we haven't really talked about but really needs to be addressed is uh, access to leisure and and uh uh access so you know we've spoken to people with disabled people in general you know it was particularly people with learning things like using gyms they're not made welcome in gyms they're not made welcome in 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 other areas and it's about tackling that systemic uh uh a, a discrimination that they experience, and then perhaps the biggest thing that we haven't talked about at all has been hate crime. And we, you know, yeah. recently myself and uh, Philippa Wiseman, who's a, 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 another member of the, the, the research centre, um, have been doing work on, and you know, that it's it's part of people with a learning disabilities' everyday life. The uh, people we spoke to when we spoke to, you know, they don't get on the bus. At, when school children are on the bus. So they don't get on the bus before nine o'clock and they make sure they're not on the bus between three and four when they know children are going home because they're just, they're, they're, they've got so much abuse on the bus. Uh, people frightened to leave their communities. People frightened. These are, this this is, you know, these are, this is just such a broad, terrible experience. And I, I know uh, Eric Emerson, who writes on learning, we know that people with a learning disability die much younger than their colleagues. And at age 50, they have as many comorbidities as... uh, uh, Sorry, at age 20, they have as many comorbidities as non-disabled people do at 50. And a colleague of mine, Eric Emerson, he said, you know, some of that's related to people's impairment. Some of that's related to uh, uh, not receiving the healthcare and being discriminated against in healthcare. But an awful lot of it is related to living in a society that excludes you and living in a society where every time you go out, you're frightened of being attacked, and every time you go out, you're frightened of abuse. And I, you know the work by MenCap a few years ago. This people learn to report. Some people this happens to them on a daily basis. Others a weekly basis. It just becomes. It. I, I remember I interviewed a young man, and we were talking about his life, and we are talking about hate crime. And he just turned around once and said to me, Do "You know, I just want to want. I just want to once get on the bus." And get off the bus without being abused. And it's just, this is just like, and I think so. We've got all of these things about social care that was really important, but they all go hand in hand with creating a, an environment where people with disabled people don't feel safe. You know, it's not just people with a learning disability, it's people with short people, people with uh, facial disfigurement, uh, 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 people with uh, neurodiversity. Faith, this is part of everyday life. And it, it's just, these things need to be addressed, these cultural barriers that disabled people
0: face. And, and I think that's a strand actually across the podcasts around sort of equality and, and diversity and inclusion. I mean, yes, an awful lot is about systems and structures, but there's also about behaviours and, and attitudes. And, and I know they're not not interconnected and there's a, clearly a role for education, but the responsibilities we all have as individual citizens in terms of actually how we behave and actually calling out
2: yeah.
0: behaviour as well. I mean, obviously that's been done very much in the sort of stonewall campaigns of the past in, in relation to to gay people in the community. But, you know, if we could have much more of that on an ongoing basis, you know, where actually if somebody is abused on a bus that people don't just yeah. sit and put their head down and, and we've all been guilty of that, I'm sure. Teresa, you were going to come in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of the beauty of Rebecca, of the inclusive public services work, which is really echoing and amplifying voices of people with disabilities to be heard across Scotland in a really positive way. But I do think, Nick, there can be a link back into social care if we think about good models of personalised self-directed care. The prism within which your community views you will be dependent often on the circumstances within which you live your life. So if you look at someone who is congregating in a day centre, or someone who is in a bus with 20 other people with learning disabilities, and, and what their life might look like. We are, as a society and at a systems level, almost entrenching those differences. However, if you have a person who is living in their community independently, if they are employing people to support them, to access their community... And we haven't touched on this as social care is a driver of economic growth and economic and fair economic prosperity. Then actually, your community starts to view you very differently. And I've had lots of first-hand experience of, of parents and, and individuals who are involved with with the learning disability movement in particular, talking about the difference of going into a restaurant, and 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 their young person or their, the person that they love being viewed as a citizen of their community, a customer who will access the restaurant and buy lunch as part of their community, as opposed to having lunch served to them in a congregated building institution with 50 other people with disabilities. So for me, there's this really strong link between how society views those with impairments, learning disabilities as active contributors to their community. And social care, in my view, has a huge part to play in that. Good self-directed community-based social care helps break down that stigma and actually helps the prism within which we view. And we're doing a little bit of work again early days in terms of research of the idea of social care as an engine for economic growth in a fairer Scotland. And I think there's something around how we communicate and message that. Social care is not a drain on our economy, but actually can be a positive impact and have a positive multiplier effect fiscally and in terms of society as a whole and how we become more inclusive.
2: I think yes, I think there's a there's a very good point there. And and certainly one of the things that COVID has exposed is how contingent disabled people's lives are on uh uh, on on services that they're not they're living in the community but they're not of the community often
1: and we need to meet them of the community
2: yeah and and we need to make them of the community and what happens is that they're used to a a, a, a going every day to a a a club of some form or other where they meet other people with their own disability and then these were closed during covid and they had no community they had no friends and when i I spoke to someone who said uh, a she had no, no contact. I spoke to her in January. She says since last March, it's been me, the cat, and the TV. And because her the drama clubs had closed, her, and she she had four groups when before COVID. She had four groups that she really enjoyed going to. But what happens is I think that, that when these things break down, we all lost our, we all lost connections. But I think for people with a learning disability, these connections were, there were no other connections in their community. They, they didn't have the, the sort of community groups in there to support them. And, but some, some were well supported by neighbors. So I'm not saying that all it was all a disaster, but there were some who led very, very segregated and very lonely lives during the, the, the pandemic. And, and we learned that we've always known, and I, I suppose we have to start thinking about how do we provide support or day day activi- activities during the day for disabled people, for people with a, with an intellectual disability and also keep them part of the community. And, and I don't think we've ever really finessed that. There's work, There's people People will get work, but it's how we can move as well beyond or include other forms of involvement as well. And, and I think it's making people of the community that's the issue.
1: Nick, if I can paint a picture, imagine if that person you're talking about, and I don't know who she is, but imagine if she accessed her local drama club that was in her community and then COVID hits and the local drama club closes down, but the local drama club moves online, or they find different ways to work, then actually the isolation becomes much less likely because she is of her community, and often the community will have those. They will leverage their own assets, won't they, in order to make sure in a crisis that people are being properly supported. So so I do think there is something for me, this connection between congregate institutionalized settings versus community-based settings that can entrench that isolation and and really my hope is that we take this opportunity and we see lots of it Nick you and I will both see lots of it on social media and within the circles we work in of people saying I'm not going back to my day centre. I, um,
2: I think there's I think there is that and I'm, I'm, I've also spoken to people who who live outside what one who live outside of the major cities yeah uh, uh who don't have the resource that of, of third sector organizations and so on to and don't know very many people but one of the things that's happened during covid is that the shift online they now have connections from you know aberdeen to plymouth and they have yeah. friends all over the country yeah and you speak to them and 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 they there's a the different They've, they've learned different things i spoke to one woman who who's told me she realized that she was being bullied in her work so she's not going back to that job because she was being she's not going to go back and put up with being treated like that because she hadn't spoken to other people and didn't appreciate that this is not normal to be treated like that and that and I, and I think that there will be there'll be a return some people will want to go back to um and i think that's one of the things that we have to put we have to put in place, Models where if people want to go to a a, a club for uh, uh, people with a learning disability or people with a physical impairment or whatever they can go mm-hmm. but also that they can go to clubs to, that they are accepted in local drama groups and it's not tokenistic but they're given the thing or that they are taken on in cookery classes or they are taken on in other groups and that's so there there needs to be people can both have their own groups but also be part of the mainstream at the same time
0: and I guess that takes us back to almost where we started in terms of the importance of choice
2: Mm -hmm. self-directedness Rebecca
1: absolutely you've just summed up self-directedness and choice and control
2: (laughs) And it it is about how people having the the right to make those choices themselves and so that all of that comes through and being able to go on the bus to go to those groups and not have to rely on community transport because they're too frightened. And, to and being
0: facilitated and able to to make yeah. the choices, not just being being okay. given them. Um, yeah. I, I mean, none of us would want to repeat the experiences of the pandemic, but the post-COVID Futures Commission of RSE was very much set up on the basis of how can we emerge as positively as possible from the pandemic and making sure we do use this as an opportunity to maybe reset some things, to do things differently. Um, so, just a, a final question—not an easy one—but um, we've talked quite a bit about what's what's being done well in Scotland and some of the things you'd you'd wish to see changed. But if you could do one thing to improve the lives of disabled people in Scotland and the quality of the lives they lead today, what would that be,
2: Nick? Oh gosh, uh, um, I suppose that for me it would be ensuring involvement and ensuring participation and ensuring disabled people have more say in in how services are delivered and and working with there's a there's a uh, there, there's a big drive towards co-production and i think we've 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 seen this move towards co-production and, and working with but it's not throughout the system and i think we need to move that that for me there needs to be this move towards sort of a more uh, user-led but also uh, uh, co-produced, but that doesn't mean that users know everything. But what it means is that, that they work with, and and it's not deprofessionalizing. You know, social workers and, and and people who design policy and design systems have their own level of expertise. But it's working with and working together so that they bring in that expertise, but they work with uh, people. don't do. So I think that w- one of the great things for me would be would would be that that recognition more more widespread recognition of of co-production and 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 realising actually realising that and I, I mean I know we've had a lot of events because ten years isn't it since the Christie Commission and we're still seeing with you know the, the the great Christie laid out you know all of this 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 idea of how we did it but it hasn't really been implemented in in the way it, 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 we haven't achieved all that we could have got from Christie but I think that whole notion of, of Of co-production and of working with communities is is for me the way forward, and that would be, I think, the one thing I would like to see. And and I look at post-COVID, I look at the organisations that have you know really changed the way that services are delivered, and they they've involved disabled people, and you speak to disabled people, and they talk about the 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 way these organisations have helped them. So yes, it's co-production would be for me.
1: Thanks, Nick. Teresa. I'm going to cheat a little bit and say to Rebecca, if I may. So self-directedness is the default position. That just has to be it in whatever we do with public services. Self-directedness must be the default position, and the funding should follow that. And that would really push people to change. And the second thing I think from a health and social care provision perspective, I'm going to be quite controversial here and say that the de minimis position for the delivery of social care needs to be very good or excellent. That has to be the de minimis position because what we have seen next throughout the pandemic are social care providers who were not providing very good or excellent support pre-pandemic, absolutely struggling and in many cases failing people during the pandemic. So this idea is a country that we allowed mediocrity in the delivery of social care at scale for a long period of time, I think is something we can never go back to. The spotlight on what very good and excellent looks like needs to remain in terms of the delivery of social care. And it has to be the de minimis, Rebecca, because if something, and we know there will be other pandemics potentially, we know that we live in a very volatile environment, we must be prepared culturally and systemically in care not just in terms of PPE and the practical stuff we must be absolutely culturally prepared for things that could go wrong and that means starting from a de minimis foundation of very good or excellent nothing else is acceptable.
0: Teresa and Nick thank you so much for giving up your time today to talk with me about disability and inequality.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website rse.org.uk or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube.